Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church that is at Rome. I'm just going to read one verse of Scripture. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith, and because of that, we have peace with God, and we have that peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you for it. We know that your spirit is here right now, illuminating our hearts and our minds with your understanding of your word. We pray that you touch us in these next few moments. In Christ's name, amen. Justification by faith. So I am <clears throat> working my way through uh, a series, we all are, to get to the point of baptism. And next week we're going to talk about baptism. I've said for several weeks <clears throat> that this is a series on baptism. And some of you are probably wondering, when are we going to talk about baptism? So that is going to be next week. <clears throat> we're going to talk next week about what does it mean to be baptized in Jesus' name? Why are we baptized in Jesus' name? And what happens at baptism? These are some really powerful ideas, but there's a lot of foundations that, uh, a lot of ideas that need to come before this. I am all for crusades, mass gatherings where people, there's an appeal to people for the gospel to come. Uh, but one of my concerns is, and this happened about a month ago uh, at, at a center not too far from here, uh, there was a large gathering, and uh, in that service, they made a mass appeal uh, to people, pe for people to come forward and be baptized. And my concern with that is, do these people understand what is happening in this baptism? Uh, if you don't have an understanding of what's going on, I'm not going to say that the baptism is of none effect, uh, but if there hasn't been an understanding of the baptism, if there hasn't been a credible profession of faith, so we are all Baptistic in nature. Uh, not Baptist denominationally, but we are Baptistic, uh, meaning that baptism plays a central role in who we are and what we do. In, and I'll get into this next week, but there are two kinds of Baptist people. They are paedo-Baptists, and those are people who believe in infant baptism. So this would be the sprinkling of, of infants. And there are credo-baptists, and that would be any sort of Christian denomination that dips people, immerses people in water. The credo-baptists are people who, like us, believe that there needs to be a credible profession of faith. Credo just simply means, I believe. And it's somebody who has declared that they believe, and now the baptism is uh, an indication of that. And so my concern when people are baptized is... <coughs> Have, have, do they really believe? Has there been a credible profession of faith? So we're going to get to all that next week. Uh, I'm really looking forward. I actually finished that sermon last night. Uh, so really looking forward to, uh, to getting to that point. So go back with me in your mind and let's assume, let's pretend like we are living in the 16th century. 
And to live in the 16th century, if you're a Christian, means that you are part of one church because there's only one church that exists. It is the church, and if you're a Christian, that's what you belong to. So I'm going to talk about some things that we would believe as believers in the 16th century, or at least what the church taught. Uh, you may not believe that if you're in the church, but this is what the church taught. The church taught that there are different classifications of sins. And one of these classifications is it's what's called mortal sin. So if you died with mortal sin in your life, you would go to hell. There's no question about it. You would immediately pass go and go directly to hell. But if you died with what most people, how most people would die, with just some impurities in your life, you would neither go to heaven or hell. You would go to a place called purgatory. Purgatory was and is a place of suffering. I'm talking about what we would believe as, as 16th century believers. We would believe that purgatory is a place of suffering <clears throat> that is a place where it purges us of our sins until we are justified, until we are declared innocent by God. We're pure enough, we're righteous enough to be found acceptable in God's sight, <clears throat> but none of us are there, even this morning. Uh, in reality, we know, the truth is none of us are there. We all have impurities in our lives, and so if we were to die, we would have to go to this place called purgatory. And in purgatory, there would be a place of suffering that would burn out all the impurities until you could finally be worthy enough to go to heaven. And on the surface to those people, it did make sense because we know that He's a holy God. No sin can enter into heaven. Uh, so when the sin is purged, then God will declare you righteous, and now you can go to heaven. And, of course, we know that this idea is, one, not biblical. There's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. The reason why uh, that church could believe that is because they have other books that they include that we don't include in our Bible, and those books are where they pulled the idea of, of purgatory from. But the bigger picture about what's wrong with this is that in this picture, sanctification, the process of becoming like God, preceded justification. God declaring us innocent. So now I have to get good enough before I can be saved, which is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches, that I'm saved. I'm not good enough to be saved. God simply declares me righteous, and now the rest of my life it's a process of becoming more like Him. But in the 16th century, this was actually good news because there was what was called the treasury of merit. So think about the treasury of merit like this bank account. And in this bank account, these merits could be credited towards a person's sin. And these merits would come from Jesus Christ, but also from His mother Mary and other saints. Other saints, you could get merits from these uh, people uh, to kind of issue toward your sin so you wouldn't have to spend so long in purgatory. And the combined treasury of merit, all of these merits together, they were avail available to assist a person in their Christian repentance. So I need to repent before God, I need to be pure, I need to be holy, but I need help doing that, so I've got this bank account of merits that I can pull from. The merits could be granted to the faithful to shorten the time spent in purgatory, and this was called an indulgence. So I give you a merit, and I have, this is called an indulgence when I give you a merit. Now, a lot of this is disputed today as far as how widespread this was, but this was the church's theology. In 1343, Pope Clement VI brought these ideas together in an official statement. So the Pope, who was the head of the church, declares this in the 14th century, that this is how it really is. Now, 
the indulgences were earned by the living. This is just for living people for the future when they would die. So I know that, you know, the Lord willing, I have several years in front of me, and I know that in those years, I'm going to probably make some mistakes along the way. There's going to be something there. So I'm going to go ahead and start getting these, these merits because they're going to kind of help me along the way in my repentance. So when I die, I don't have to spend so long in this horrible place of suffering before I finally go to heaven. Then came along a guy named Parati, Raymond Parati. And Parati argued that not only were these available for the living, but if they could be available for the living, they should also be available for people who have already died. And so finally there was a, a de declaration by the Pope to implement this idea. So the Pope is, like, you know, he makes the law, the church tradition. So in our faith tradition, uh, we believe that Scripture is elevated above church authority. But in that church, church tradition is elevated to the point of and sometimes above the Holy Scriptures. Uh, when the bubonic plague, the Black Death, came through the world, uh, the Pope declared that anybody who dies of the bubonic plague was automatically granted repentance of sins. And that was just done. I mean, it would be the equivalent today to uh, church leaders saying anybody who dies of COVID, they're all, they automatically get a free pass uh, into heaven, no matter what. And to us, that sounds absurd, but that is where the church was at. So we're going to circle, just kind of put a pin on that. That's how it was in the 16th century. When we talk about the doctrine of justification, the idea of God declaring us righteous, the severity of the penalty of sin is what makes this idea so beautiful. That after the Apostle Paul's masterful discourse in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, persuading us that God's grace is greater than any law, then Paul comes along and says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. He says in Romans 5, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace because God declares us righteous. We are saved. But what are we saved from? We are saved from God. As sinners, we justly deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. That is why what I am preaching this morning is the most practical thing that a preacher could preach. You want practical, this is practical. Because nothing is more practical in your life than the need to escape the wrath of God. If you can't escape the wrath of God upon your sin, you really don't need a sermon on how to be a better person. None of that matters. You don't need a sermon on how to be a, a better steward of your finances, that's important. How to be a better husband, that's important. But none of those things are as important as the ultimate reality that I need God on my side. So we talk about who put Jesus on the cross, what killed, like what was the, the ultimate reality of why Jesus was put forward on the cross, who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And the answer is, according to Paul in Romans, I'm not going to get into it right here, but Paul, there is text where Paul says God did it. God is the one. He put forth His Son to bear our sins. It was God who did this. So because Jesus bore our sins, that's why we have peace with God. Now the word justified, it simply means to be pardoned or acquitted or declared innocent. What justification does is it balances the ledger. And it's the only reason Paul could say we have peace with God. Justification changes the role that God plays in our lives from judge to redeemer. We get redemption because God declares us innocent because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. God keeps perfect books and ever, every sin ever committed will be reconciled. 
it will either be reconciled by the judgment of God or by the blood of Jesus Christ. So this idea of justification by faith is very clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 5. However, there are many other verses in the scriptures that talk about justification. And we can reason that no verse in the Bible should be elevated above another verse. There's no verse in scripture that we can say this is elevated above this verse. We have to take them all into consideration. The only one that gets to elevate scripture was Jesus. And when they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he told them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And then he gives them a bonus they didn't ask for. And the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. If you have done this, you will fulfill the law and the prophets. So Jesus gets to elevate scriptures above uh, ideas in scripture above another, but we don't get to do that. All scripture is God-breathed, inerrant, and infallible. And there's no single verse in the Bible that is the final authority to explain justification and redemption and salvation. We have to step back, we have to look at God's Word in its entirety and see the whole picture because redemption is a story. It is the story of God's redemptive purpose that unfolds in Scripture. If we were to base our entire redemptive experience on one verse, we wouldn't need anything outside this one verse. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God. But it would take away the blood of Jesus, it would take away the Spirit of God at work. That's why you can't do that. It's only one piece of the puzzle. Because eight verses later in Romans, remember Paul says you're justified by faith. Eight verses later, Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. Wait a minute, Paul, I thought we were justified by faith. Yes, you are. And then you're justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. To further complete this picture, Paul writes, after reminding the Corinthians of their past sins, then he says, and such were some of you. You were all these filthy, immoral, vile people, and now you're not because God has justified you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How are you justified? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we can step back and see a picture of what Paul says justifies us and say it's through faith, by His blood, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It becomes a much more holistic, well-rounded picture of how God does what He does in our lives. It is a beautiful display of God's grace reaching down to us and we in return responding to Him in faith. And our faith response is met with Christ justifying us, declaring us innocent, sparing us from God's wrath and pardoning the death sentence that was handed down to us from God. That's what it means biblically to be justified by faith. To stand before God innocent of the charges that were leveled against me, although I truly was guilty. So circle back to the 16th century. And here just <clears throat> four years ago, we had the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. There was a lot of talk about justification by faith. And there was a lot of talk, rightfully so, about some ideas that came out of that. Uh, you'll read, if you read much about Christianity, you'll read that they had these ideas that were the five solas, which just is, is solely, like alone. And it was the idea that pushed completely against the church of that day that said, no, we're not saved this way. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. Faith, grace, Christ, Word, God's glory. 
And these five ideas revolutionized the church of that day. So there was a, there was a guy, his name was Tetzel. Tetzel was a German preacher. And this German preacher was selling, remember I said these indulgences were things that you could dole out to people to reduce your sentence. Tetzel was selling these. And he was selling these from the treasury of merit. So Tetzel would come through and Tetzel would come through town beating a drum. Literally had a drum that he would beat to get the people's attention. And he was going around selling these indulgences. And it came to the point where Tetzel, along with others, were saying that you can buy these for your dead relatives, for your dead family members, for your dead friends. And there became a saying that came along that said, every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Another word, I flip in my quarter and my dead great aunt comes flying out of purgatory. And this is, they built a church that is still in Rome today. You can go visit the church. They built a church. The whole purpose of Tetzel doing this, it was a fundraiser to build a church. So the Pope commissions Tetzel to go through the German countryside and sell indulgences. And really, that's where the money is going for. It's a fundraising effort. And then you have this guy named Martin Luther, who was another German monk. And he argued against Tetzel. So in 1510, Martin Luther goes to Rome and he goes to the Lateran Church. And in the Lateran Church, there were and are, it's still there today, you can go there and climb the same steps. There are people there, I'm sure today, especially on a Sunday, who are doing this today on the same steps that Martin Luther did this on. It is supposedly the church that houses the same steps that they say that Jesus walked up the night of his trial. So they pulled these steps out of Jerusalem, they moved them to Rome, uh, and that's why these steps are so holy. Uh, big air quotes. It's very unlikely that these are the same steps. It's probably more of a tradition. It's possible, but there's no real evidence that that is, is true. But there are a lot of people that believe these are the steps that Christ climbed. These are the steps that Martin Luther climbed, and you can go there today and climb them if you like. I really want to go to Rome and see this. I'm not going to climb the steps. Uh, I don't think you can unless you uh, do the uh, Hail Marys and all that. Uh, but today, uh, there are no doubt people, even this morning, who are climbing those steps and they climb them on their knees. So you get down on your knees and you climb up on your knees and every time you climb up you say a Hail Mary. And that gets you indulgences. And Martin Luther did this. Uh, to us, 500 years ago is a long time, but in the grand scheme of things it really wasn't that long ago. And Luther does this and Luther gets to the top of the step, stands up and mutters something to the effect of, is this even true? Is, is this really how it works? That's what's in his mind. Like, what am I doing here? I mean, I'm a Bible scholar. I know the Bible. I live the Bible. I, I'm a monk. Like, all I do is, you know, it's, it's, I'm not a part-time student. I live in Scripture, and I'm not really seeing this. And what Luther at the time is questioning is not purgatory. It took L Luther years after the Reformation to, to decide there was no purgatory. But he was pushing it back against this idea that you could buy these tr merits and they were for dead people. and It just wasn't making sense. So he goes back to Germany and he searches and he studies for seven years. 
And seven years later, in 1517, October 31st, 1517, Luther takes, and tradition says, he nails, it's called the 95 Theses. It's just 95 bullet points. And he takes these and he goes to the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nails these on the church door. It was very common. This is what people did when they had announcements. They would post stuff on the church door for people to see. We don't know if he actually did this. Like everything you read says Luther did this. Luther wrote thousands, if not millions of words after this, and he never actually talks about this event. He never says he nailed those to the church. What we know he did for certain was he mailed these to his superiors in the church and said, these are my protests. These are things that I just don't think are true. It was supposed to be an internal debate. But justification by faith is one of those 95 major ideas of Protestant Christianity that was part of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. What we do know happened is that copies of these 95 Theses were made in Latin and in German, and people begin to read them thanks to new technology. It would have been impossible before, but this fairly new creation invention called the printing press allowed young people. It was young people who got a hold of these and young people who wanted to be radical against the church and started printing these and they soon distributed these flyers all over Europe. Luther never intended for that to happen. That's not what he was going for. But we believe, I believe, that it was by divine intervention that God was trying to bring the church back to a place of biblical truth and fidelity. So Luther's 95 Theses ignited a fire that would become this Protestant movement, which just means protest. It was people protesting against the church, saying this isn't true, this isn't right. And it would eventually evolve into all these different groups that started going off. And you know, this is where we get all these different kinds of churches from today, where back then there was only one church, is because they began to evolve and set up different camps here, and we believe in this, and we don't believe in this. And uh, eventually this became denominations that housed these schools of thought. But let's talk about what we mean by faith and faith alone. If by faith alone we mean faith and not works, then yes. If by faith alone we are excluding a salvation of works, then yes. If by faith alone we are excluding the atonement and the redemptive work of Christ on the cross and the new birth and all of these other ideas, then no, that's not what we mean by faith alone. We mean faith alone as Paul is pushing back against faith alone and not works or as Luther is pushing back against faith alone and not the church tradition. We're not excluding all of these other things because at the center of justification by faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I had the, uh, <clears throat> the last Purpose Institute class that I taught, uh, I, I asked them, and it was a trick question. So I asked the room, I said, can anybody tell me how the Apostle Peter says we are born again? And I knew the answers I would get. Peter said you must repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I said, wrong. You cannot open your Bible and say that that's how Peter said we are born again. Peter didn't say that. Peter said to do those things, he did not tie that to the new birth in any capacity. I said, how does Peter, in the Bible, let's be Bible-centered people, how does Peter say that we are born again? This brand new convert. Most of the people in this class were not new converts. 
This was the type of class that people who had been in around a long time would take. And, but there was this one guy that was pretty new to faith, and he sat, he was sitting over here on this side, and he, he rarely said anything. And he said, Peter said we're born again by the living and abiding Word of God. It's like, yes. That's what, and you know, the room just kind of looks at me like, well, no, Peter says, I'm like, no, Peter does not tie new birth into anything other than being born again of the living and abiding Word of God. 1 Peter 23, 123, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of God, the Word of the Lord remains forever. This is why I'm t I talk about if you're reading the Bible, and in the New Testament we engage the Old Testament, the good thing about a translation like the ESV that we're using is that it will use quotation marks. Now, In the original languages, in the original text, there were no quotation marks, but we put them there so people can understand that when Peter says, for all flesh is like grass, he's actually quoting something from the Old Testament because the New Testament is constantly quoting the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. This is what Peter is doing. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. And then he says, this is Peter talking, and this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. You were born again of water and of spirit through the living and abiding Word of God. Remember, Jesus said, if you keep my word, you will never see death. I have a sermon I, I hope to preach at some point, and we'll probably hit it when we're working through the Gospels. Uh, that the sermon is, you will never see death. You will never die. If you are a believer, you will never see what true death is. And it's, this sermon is based on the words of Jesus. If you keep my word, you'll never see death. He said that 2,000 years ago, and everybody that he said it to died, and they've been dead for 2,000 years. Um, but that's not the kind of death he was talking about. He's saying that eternal death, that damnation that comes from sin, you'll never see it. Your eternal life is secured through the living and abiding Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That is the power of the Word of God. The Word of God repels death. It destroys death. It conquers death. You will never see death because you were born again through the living and abiding Word of God. James said, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your soul. John 1, in the beginning, John 1 is... I can't wait to get to John 1 and preach it. John 1 is just a beautiful passage of Scripture. It is elevating Christ to the point of who He really is, the eternal Word of God that is made incarnate in flesh. Christ is the Word dwelling among us in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John and the writer of Hebrews put Jesus in the position of being the creator of the universe. John declared in verse 14, the Word became flesh 
and it dwelt among us. This reveals Jesus Christ as both God and man. The eternal Word became flesh and lived among His creation. Jesus Christ is the Word manifest in the flesh, and the Bible is the God-breathed Word that flowed through the pen of inspired men. And so, ministers of the gospel, what is my high and holy calling this morning? It is to preach the Word, declaring the deity of Jesus Christ and the Scriptures. It is not one or the other, it is both and. It is Christ and the Scriptures. Preaching that is faithful to the Bible while declaring Jesus Christ will have the intended effect of transforming the lives of people. Now here is the main point of this entire sermon. We are justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we are born again through the living and abiding Word of God, 1 Peter 1. These ideas are not against each other. It's the same idea expressed in two different ways. Don't view justification and the new birth as, and the gospel. Don't view them as separate experiences. All of these themes are interwoven. And if you try to separate them, you will break it. It's like asking the question, exactly at what point is a person saved? When exactly is a person saved? And this question was posed to uh, Dr. David Norris, who I had the wonderful privilege five years ago of, of uh, sitting in a class eight hours a day, five days a week in one of his classes in St. Louis. Somebody asked David Norris this question, and his answer was just brilliant. Uh, and I've heard other people since then give this answer and not give Norris the credit, but I'm like, no, I think you got that from Norris. Like, Norris is the guy that thought this up. Uh, and Dr. Norris said, when is a person saved? He said, I will no more try to answer that question than to answer the question, when is, are two people married? Are they married when they sign the legal documents? Are they married when the minister says I do? Or when they say I do? Are, are, are they married when the minister says I now pronounce you man and wife? Are they married when they consummate that relationship on their wedding night? When are they actually married? Norris said, there's no way I'd try to answer that question. He said, you can't break those apart. They are all pieces of the whole that come together and say, all of this together makes these people married. They're all important pieces. And Norris said, neither will I try to answer the question, what is a person saved? He goes, That's, it, it's, it's foolish questions that say, no, I've got to be justified by faith. I have to have a credible profession of faith. There again, it's my concern why uh, it, it's my concern of people who are baptized who don't understand what is going on because they, there needs to be a credible profession of faith. They need to place their faith and confidence and trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life. Now that is not the last step. And, and I'm really, I, I am uh, averse to making salvation into steps, into sequential steps. The Bible doesn't treat it that way at all. But they are all different pieces that come together and paint a beautiful picture of redemption. And so the person needs to have a credible profession of faith that they believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is fully divine, and that He is, the, he is their Lord. They have made Him Lord in their life. But then there's baptism. And we'll get to that next week about what happens at baptism. And there is the, the work of the Spirit, the infilling of a Spirit in a person's life. The redemptive purpose of God is like a diamond with a thousand points of light, all reflecting, all brilliant, and all of them true. So are we justified by faith? Yes. Are, we, are our sins washed by the blood of Jesus? Yes. Are we justified in the name of Jesus? According to Paul, yes. Are we justified by the Spirit of God? 
according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, yes. Are we baptized in Jesus' name, according to Paul, yes. Are we filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to the early church record, yes. Is our salvation secured in the cross? Absolutely. Is our salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. All of these things are true. We are, our, our thinking is so different than how the thinking of the, the early church and the early church writers, it's very different. And they, they were able to hold different ideas in tension and say all of these ideas are true. And we don't make them sequential. Paul never does things in sequence. He may do something in sequence here and somewhere else in his writings is just completely mixed up. It's because Paul's not laying them out. He's not stack ranking them in order of importance. That's not how the Bible works. We read. This is, why we, this is why it's so important to not get caught up on one particular verse of Scripture. There is a, a chair passage. A chair passage is a passage in Christianity that is usually elevated above uh, the rest of Scripture. And there is a chair passage that is uh, Acts 2.38. It's a passage that I was raised on that every child from the age of five years old on would have to mem memorize. And... Uh, Say, so is Acts 2.38 true? Absolutely. It's in the biblical text. It is true. And so is every other verse in the Bible that works together with that to synthesize what it means to be saved, what it means to be justified by faith. I had someone say to me one time, we were having a discussion, and they said, all I need is Acts 2.38. And I said, I'd let that slide. I said, but I love you far too much to let that slide without a conversation. And we had the conversation, and I think I, I got him to see that this verse is important. This verse is vital, but so is every other verse in the Bible. That's what we want to be, faithful, Bible-saturated, God-centered, Christ-exalting people. When you begin to see these different ideas throughout the biblical text, they will change your life in a way that nothing else will because these things nobody can take away from you. Once you see them, you can't unsee them. Once you see them, they will start to work their way through your heart, your mind, and your life. And they will have their effect on a Tuesday afternoon on the job, on a Thursday night uh, family disagreement, on a Saturday hobby. They will work their ways through there and you will act differently. You will respond to people differently. You will live your life differently because you see all of these things as true. And when you see all of these things as true, all you can do is step back and worship. Just exalt in Him and worship Him and revel in the sheer glory and majesty of who God is. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for the redemptive work that you did for us on Calvary. Lord, we are lost and without hope without what you did for us on the cross. And we are eternally indebted to you for that. But we don't try to pay you back for it. There's no amount of good works or good deeds that we could do to repay you. All we do is we worship you. We submit to your word we submit our beliefs to your word. We submit our lives, our actions, our priorities. Everything is submitted to your word and to your spirit and to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways that you would help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. 
to know that still small voice that is inside of each one of us as spirit-led and spirit-driven people. Lord, order our steps according to your word, your will, and your purpose, and transform us into your image. Continue to transform us. We're, we say we're believers, we say we're Christians, but Lord, there's so many things inside of us that we know that aren't pleasing, that aren't good, uh, that don't perfectly reflect your glory and that really we don't have the ability to change within ourselves. So we ask you that your spirit would empower us to change those things, to make the changes needed, not just to be saved, but to please you and to more perfectly reflect your glory into a lost and broken and dying world. We ask these things this morning in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.